Hey, what's up? It's another episode of De Huff Uncensored presented by my good friends over at Burns and McCoy. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to the podcast. Make sure you share it with your friends and make sure, if you're able, give it a nice review. All right. As the United States backs out of Afghanistan, thousands of people are fleeing, desperately clinging on to whatever form of escape is within reach. We have soldiers in place to try and help. And many here are reminded of a similar situation from back in 1975 with the fall of Saigon. We talked to someone who was part of the rescue group that helped save thousands of lives. Thousands of lives. But first, do yourself and your family, friends a favor. Grab some Burns and McCoy. I love Burns and McCoy, especially their hot sauce, but they also have... Amazing dressings, mustards, margarita mix, Bloody Mary mix. Burns and McCoy is a family-run business. Their goal is to bring you only the best products made with the finest ingredients. Food should be fun, and they provide that fun with each unique flavor profile they offer. They're available at all grocery stores in the Front Range, or you can go ahead and check them out at burnsandmccoy.com. All right, so this is going to be an interesting interview. Uh, This is my stepfather, Eric Johnson. Eric, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Obviously, what's going on in Afghanistan really just struck a chord with you and caused you to remember a lot that was going on in your time in the service. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. Uh, Where were you born and where'd you grow up? I was born in uh, Olympia, Washington, and when I was three years old, my dad moved us to Alaska, which is something he always wanted to do, was live in Alaska. So I spent the, from age three to age 18 in Alaska. Okay. So how did you end up getting in the Navy? Were you drafted or what? It was in 1971. In my senior year, I was... Uh, uh, a recruiter had come to the to the to the to our our, our high school, and was tr- recruiting people for the you know join instead of getting drafted because they knew if they went if they got drafted they'd end up in Vietnam where if you joined you'd had a choice. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a kind of a silly reason why I went to, chose the Navy is because we uh, in order to get back and forth to school we had to take a boat every day and I just love boats and ships so i figured it was a, a one way to s- stay on a ship and uh, you know just feel at home with it yeah that makes sense so what was your what was your job in the navy i was a boiler operator so we what all, does that mean basically we we uh, operated the boilers which supplied steam to the engine room that ran the engines ran on steam for the ships to to run through the water basically, is all it was. So what kind of ship was it? The first ship I was on was the USS Shelton. It was an old uh, destroyer. Uh, it was commissioned in 1946. And uh, I spent my first cruise on that ship over in Vietnam. When I got out of boot camp, I was assigned to that ship, and we used to do practice runs. We'd go out to um, San Clemente Island, and basically, you know, played war games out there with other ships. 
six months later, we were on our way overseas. We're getting reassigned to the Seventh Fleet over in uh, it's home ported out of the Philippines. Okay. From there, we we uh, had to leave, cut our cut our stay in the Philippines short because uh, one of the um, other destroyers had run over an underwater mine and blew out part of the uh, engine room. So they had wanted us to replace them so they could tow them back to, back to port. And there we sat on the fire line for roughly 37 days before we got back to, back to, to land. So you are how old then? I was 19. So you're 19 years old. You're in the Navy, and you're replacing a ship that hit an underwater mine. What's your, what's your headspace like? At that point in time, it was like, oh, my God, I just hope we don't have an issue like that, too. In fact, as we were heading up there, we happened to uh, run across uh, a red Chinese ship. And I just happened, me and another buddy had just gone outside to see what the weather was like. And to see those guns facing right towards us, it's like, oh, my God. So we ducked back inside because fortunately there were no, no, uh, no guns fire at all towards yeah. our ship. But it was just like they were ready to fire in case uh, we did something ourselves. How far do you think they were? I would say they were probably couldn't be more than a um, thousand feet away. Oh, my God. Wow. That was the closest I, wa- I ever wanted to be. Right. To, uh, and a, to a gun pointing at you. Right. Wait, and how long were you guys out there? We were out there. When we got, when we got to uh, our position, we were out there for 37 days. And basically all we did was just run up and down the coast, firing at anything that came along that was on shore, basically. Nothing, nothing at sea. What kind of weapons were you guys shooting? There are 16 millimeter uh, guns. Okay. And he also had an ASROC, which is like a, like a, a bomb launcher, basically, okay. that they used occasionally, not all the time, but basically it was their, their it was the uh, gun mounts, the guns on mounted on the front of the ship. You're down below in the, uh, we were, yeah, in, we're down in the, bowels. In the, we're down what they call the hole, basically down in the fire room. So you guys are down below making sure everything's, you know, working properly in case you got to, you know, go hot one direction or another. And I can only imagine the intensity down there at times. Basically, we're the heartbeat of the whole ship because we supply steam to everything from the engine room to the uh, cafeterias, you know, that cook the food and anything else that we had on the ship that... uh, uh, that operated by steam. It's a great point. Great point. And before we get into the chaos of 1975 as Saigon Falls, was there ever a point before that where you're like, oh my God, this is it. This is the end. Well, there was time. In fact, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if this is true or not. I just happened to read it someplace that um, the, the four ships, the three ships that went over from San Diego, because we weren't the only ship going over to get reassigned, that this astrologer, she said that 
out of all the ships, the oldest ship would, would not make it back. And I just, we, I just happened to be on the ship that was the oldest of the oh three. So you know, I got that going through my mind. Yeah. And then uh, during, during a lot of this, they, uh, towards the end of our cr uh, first cruise overseas, we, got it, we ended up going through what they call night raids, where we went into the, uh, got into the, the uh, firing line there where they were shooting at the Vietnamese on land and they were shooting back. And at one point they said, we were told that there was like 1,600 rounds per minute coming back at us. Whoa, whoa. So they tell us. Yeah. You know. So every, every night for I don't know how many nights, we had to go to what they call general quarters. And general quarters is where you're assigned to a certain part of the ship. You couldn't stay, you know, sleep in here. But if you were on duty, you stayed there. If you weren't on duty, then you had to go to these certain areas of the ship. And that's where you hung out with everybody else. Because it was just safer? It was safer, yeah. Wow. So, you know, even that was going through my mind. As a 19-year-old, it's like, I don't know. It's just, But uh, there was another incident where... It was kind of interesting how it happened. We were escort, basically a destroyer is, escorts the uh, aircraft carriers. Okay. So we're basically the decoy yeah. for the aircraft carriers. So that was another thing that would go through my mind. Wow. It's like, so it's like, well, I just hope and pray that we get back in one piece. Okay. So we're going to get into the fall of Saigon here in a second, but. Let's move on to a little bit more of an easier topic, I guess you could say. Grilling. If you like to grill, we love it here at the house. We're going to have you guys over here shortly. Grill up some of that salmon. And my friends over at Cinch, they're all about propane. Because we're all about propane. And they do propane home delivery. They come to your house, pick up your used tank, and leave a fresh tank at the location you select. It could be the driveway, doorstep, or porch. Very easy. New Cinch customers right now get their first tank exchange delivered for just $10 when they use the promo code MILEHIGH at checkout. Again, MILEHIGH, all one word. Just go to cinch.com, C-Y-N-C-H.com, enter your zip code, order your tanks, select a delivery date, use the promo code MILEHIGH. Again, all one word. Then set out your used tank for the exchange. Check it out. Cinch.com, C-Y-N-C-H.com. Again, promo code is mile high, all one word. All right, so it's 1975. You've been in the Navy for three and a half years. How have you changed? How have you grown? What have you learned? What are you like now, three and a half years into service? I uh, I was able to see a lot of things like different places that we visited and really appreciated what this country had to offer. I mean, I grew a lot, you know, I've, I was always thought, I thought of it, I couldn't, uh, couldn't leave home. Mm -hmm. And basically this helped me break the apron strings mm -hmm. and it helped me to learn. I learned a lot about life and how other people lived around the world. And you really appreciate what you had here. And uh, it's, it was just, I, I mean, I, 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 knew, I could see how things were evolving with me as I was getting older. 
that I saw, I looked at the world a lot differently than I did back when I was 19. So again, it's, it's 1975. Congress and the Pentagon are pressing President Ford to evacuate um, as soon as possible. And as news is spreading that Saigon is falling faster than expected. So where do you guys step in at this point? Well, we were at that time before we got the word, we were in Singapore, you know, doing a little bit of R and R they call rest and relaxation. And we were in the middle of a tour and all of a sudden the bus driver says, we got to take you back to the ship. Now you got, uh, They'll, ex- they'll explain everything when you get there. So I thought, oh, my God, what, what happened now? Yeah. So they got us back to this ship. They told us in a briefing that we would be heading back to South Vietnam because Saigon had just fallen, and the North Vietnamese had told the South Vietnamese to leave the country or be killed. Okay. So uh, I think it took us, what, a couple days to get up to our position. I've already, a lot of the other ships were already there in position. And uh, they, um, at, I'd say the day we got there, they sh- helicopters and ships were starting to come out from South Vietnam in droves. And because of the fact that the bigger ships, like the carriers, couldn't handle all, the sh- all of them coming on board, they had to start picking the smaller ships that had a helicopter pad on them and a uh, by then, I had transferred from an, from that from the USS Shelton to the USS Kirk, so I was on a different ship at that time. It was actually a, that was considered a destroyer escort. Okay. So uh, we got there, and it's, and uh, obviously I was when I was had any free time, I'd go up on deck and see what was going on. But you could just see these. It was like. A, a swarm of bees coming out. It just that's what reminded me of it. Just all these helicopters that went, and they were all all these um, old he- American helicopters that we had were using in South Vietnam during the during the war. So what's going through your head as you not only see that, but you're you're hearing that coming your way? Well, I said, oh my God, you know what's happening here? It's just you know, first thing I thought about is these poor people coming from a country that they grew up in, a lot of them, and it's like they don't know what their future's going to be. They don't know where they're going to be going. And it, it was just, it was heartbreaking to see it, you know, and I, some of those pictures that I, I, was, I took, you know, they really were. I'm going to share some of these pictures that you, you shared with me, and they're just, they just, you tell the story of how the, you, you know, the ships are jam-packed with people, but to actually see the pictures that you took is just jaw-dropping. And the one picture that really stands out to me is this young boy sticking his head out along with his el- his arm out of the porthole. And it's just, it really just tells you the the magnitude of what was going on and the, just the innocence that is mixed up in the middle of it. And it's just, these photos you took, Eric, no joke. These could be in a magazine. And, and to be honest, in a sense, they deserve to be. Because the chaos 
that was going on at this moment is just mind-blowing. And also to add on to this is you have so many people on the deck that you, you're running out of room. You have these helicopters landing, but you're starting to run out of room for the people. One of the stories that just blows my mind that you've told me before is about pushing off the helicopters to make room for the people. Tell us more about that. Because of, of our, I don't know, can't speak for the other ships, but for us, we only had the helo pad, helo pad that was capable of holding one helicopter at a time. So as soon as the people got off, you know, off the helicopter and safety, they just shoved the helicopter over the side. I don't remember how many helicopters we had land there that were pushed over the side, but a lot, even a lot of the other smaller ships that had capability of landing helicopters did the same thing. Because what else could they do? They had to get these people down out of the air and, and on, say, on basically solid ground, if, even though it was a ship. Right. So what's the mentality like with the crew as, you know, you're, you're now sharing your, you know, your home essentially with all these other people where, was there any sort of resentment? What, what's the mentality like? It's just doing your job? Just part of the job? Well, it, it basically was part of the job, and then we knew we were saving people. But again, on the other hand, what especially going through my mind is, like I said before, these people are now you know, leaving their home country that they've known for years, and they don't know what their future is going to be. Yeah. You know, And you know, it was heartbreaking to think about it. I mean, most, peop most people on the ship, felt the same way, you know, from talking to them. That's the way, pretty much what the whole attitude. Okay, so you guys load up your ship as, as much as possible. You, you're, you're dumping helicopters into the sea. At this point, what's next? What happened next? They, they, we were told we had roughly 150 Vietnamese on our ship. Okay. But what happened next was they had to get a person, a U.S. citizen on board each of these other ships with the American flag flying okay. in order to be able to escort them into port, which was the Philippines. So, you know, basically it was like the Pied Piper, you know, f with all these people following behind. Each ship had so many, so many ships that were following them in, into port. But the big thing, like I said, was the American flag and an American citizen on board, basically, in order for them to enter, enter uh, our, our space, our, our base over there. In the Philippines. In the Philippines. Wow. Once they were there, uh, or the island, I think it's called Ford Island, I can't remember, I think it is. That's where they're all let off at. And from there, that's where they were processed to wherever country they were going to go to. Not, I mean, we didn't take them all in ourselves. They, these other countries like France and England, Germany, Norway, Sweden, all them took a certain amount of them too. But the, the thing that after this all happened is when I started having nightmares, um, every night it was like 
something was going on. I, I felt like these these Vietnamese were attacking me on the ship. Uh, it just, and I'm sure a lot of other people may have gone through the same thing that were experienced the same. But it was like, you know, and then I I couldn't sleep. A lot of times I couldn't sleep at night. You know, I there was times when I thought about or I, earlier on after I got out of the service suicide. Started drinking a lot more than I should have been. That was another thing. You know, I'm sure, like I said before, I'm sure a lot of people that were in that felt the same way, you know. And it's just, it was just, uh, uh, you know, even at 22 years old, you're thinking, there's so many things that are so confusing now, you know. Yeah. So it made it kind of rough. And then, and then on top of that, I may, I may be jumping too far ahead, but, you know, when I got out of the service, you go to apply for a job. And once they found out you were in Vietnam, they don't want to talk to you anymore. It's like, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. You know, I went through this many times trying to apply for a job. Really? And these people just it felt like you had the plague, you know. And I know I wasn't the only one that went through that. Every uh, every one of them did. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I mean, you went and to it, war thinking you're protecting this country, and then you come back and you get kicked in the head. Yeah. Like, you're nothing but scum now because you're over there. Which is such a bunch of shit. It is. It yeah. really is. Well, you come right down to it. It's our our kids' kids like your generation, that came back and they were welcomed with open arms. Right. You know, so the, the you know, their the attitudes changed towards that when they came back from Iraq, Iran, you know. But, I mean, which I was glad to see that because I didn't want to see anybody else go through the same thing we all did coming back. That is such a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around because, like, What's crazy is like you enlisted to defend this country. You you enlisted, you volunteered to defend the red, white, and blue. And then to to come back to that, to be like, what? Are you kidding me? That's where I thought, well, suicide would be the best thing. It's nobody wants to hire you because you're a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. Drinking was another issue, you know. I thought, well, what can do? Just pass the time away drinking, maybe. Maybe that'll, get, you know, do me in. You know, I, yeah. there were a lot of things that went through my head, you know? and I know other people had to have the same. I was probably one of the luckier ones that finally. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I still have issues with PTSD. Yeah. I mean, I still wake up in the middle of the night. So I don't have the nightmares as often as I do, but I still have that back in my mind. Yeah. I'm thinking, what's what's happening here? I mean, I still have this issue where I'm afraid someone's going to somebody's going to run run come, come through the through the front door, attack me. And it makes sense why all that's that's with you still. It does, and and honestly, I have nothing in my life that I can compare that to. So you're dealing with the chaos that has been your life during the Navy. And then to come home 
and to be just slapped in the face by all this disrespect, it's just jaw-dropping. The good thing is, is, you know, you're talking about it, and, and I'm sure there's support groups out there where you can talk about it with, with other people or go see a counselor, and there's a lot of avenues to take to help deal with this, and it's real. I hope that you know any veterans out there listening to this will also hopefully help get some help too. I mean, I still go to the VA. I still have you know being treated there for the PTSD, anxiety, and all that. Uh, so I mean, it's it's it may go on till the rest of my life. It well, honestly, yes, it might, and that's the sad truth of. The situation. Yeah. You know, you you see so many people out there that are homeless and you wonder, are they veterans? Well, there's a good chance that they are. And if you go on Google real quick and just type in PTSD, there's a lot of sites that come up that can help you if you're you're dealing with this in some fashion. Uh, Again, you could go, and one of the first sites that that pops up is ptsd.va.gov. And they can help guide you towards the help that you need. And and I know that's a hard thing to admit sometimes that that you need help. Or sometimes you know you need help, but you just don't want to take that first step. Well, there's plenty of avenues that you can take, and they can help you. They can help guide you towards the right direction for you. And again, just... A simple Google search, PTSD, or you could just try ptsd.va.gov. What's really sad is you see, hear some of these veterans out there that they, they go to the VA and all they want to do is give them medicines. They don't, they don't seem to want to give them any other kind of help. All they, can, all they want to do is dish out pills yeah. to everybody. And then that becomes a bigger problem because then you're addicted to the pills. And, yeah, and it's yeah, not and then, like... You get on the addicted, like you said, addicted to the pills, and then all of a sudden you're out of a job, you're living on the streets. You just, it's, it just seems like it's never ending. It's a, it's a vicious and horrible cycle that we're in. By the way, real quick, to circle back, how long did it take you once you guys left with the refugees? How long did it take you guys get to where you needed to be in the Philippines? I think it was about roughly three days. So what was sleeping like with that? Well, a lot of, most of them are, were sleeping on the deck outside or inside in the, in, the, in the hallways of the ship. They were basically scattered throughout. That's just anywhere and everywhere. Anywhere that they could, they could lay, lay their heads down, yeah. It's so weird in a sense that we're doing this episode when we're doing it because... Since I started the podcast back in April, you and I have been talking about doing this. And just for one reason or another, we weren't able to do it. And now with what's happening in Afghanistan, I'm hoping the fact that in a weird way, this is going to help shine a light on what you've been talking about. One, the whole situation that you were a part of with the fall of Saigon 
and and then you sharing the story your stories of PTSD I hope that that maybe this reaches somebody that you know maybe they're encouraged by by you speaking and communicating and and, and talking about the your struggles and how there is avenues to get help uh, with PTSD and you, and to, for you guys to realize that you're not alone. There's other people that have gone through stuff. Maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's the exact same, but to know that you're not alone and to hear somebody speaking about it. I mean, that's, that's got to make you feel a little bit of comfort, hopefully. This is, for a lot, for years, I didn't even talk about it. And I think that was pretty much common among all the, all the veterans out there. It's just something that you just didn't talk to anybody about. You well, just kept it all you know, boxed in. Well, and that kind of goes with the whole stigma of mental health. Uh, a lot of people are just like, they frown upon it so much of saying, oh, you're, you know, basically looking at my situation, just the fact that I got reprimanded by an old company for, you know, taking a mental health day, which they should be embarrassed about. But a lot of companies do that, and a lot of people still do that, and a lot of people are still scared to admit that there's something going on like that. And it's great that you were able to come on here and you know, give a voice. Right. I said, it's not just me. It's all of them out there. Even the ones that are coming back from Afghanistan. doesn't matter what, what era, what war you came through. It's still all, we're also going to suffer, you know, deal with the same situation, except the fact they're more welcoming with open arms nowadays than they were back then. You know, that was the hard part. Yeah. Because you think to myself, what the hell did I do then? I thought I was doing something good for the country. And they come back and basically shit on me. Right. And, and not just me, but all the others that came back. Yeah. It, it, you know, it was discouraging. It's a very, very crazy thing that you were a part of. And I know that, you know, setting politics aside, that it's very similar to what's going on in, you know, Afghanistan right now. Yeah, it, except I think Afghanistan's a lot worse than what we had in Vietnam in a lot of ways. I mean, you got the Taliban keeping keeping people from getting to the airport to get out of there. They want to keep them there. Where the Vietnamese were more just get out and go, you know. Yeah. Plus the fact that Vietnam was uh, basically, what I should say is Afghanistan is a landlocked country, mm-hmm. so... It, the only way out is by car, airplane, where at least Vietnam, they had boats, helicopters, and whatever else yeah. to get out. So in a lot of ways, Afghanistan is worse than, than Vietnam was. Wow. As in far com- as just the rescue. In compar- yeah, yeah, as far as the rescue goes. Wow. Definitely an eye-opener. Well, I... No, this is kind of a, 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 a rough subject, but I really, truly appreciate you, Eric, popping on and, and sharing your, your, your story, your journey with everyone here on the Da Huff Uncensored podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes.
We'll definitely have to do some salmon coming up soon. Salmon, yeah. Yes. That's what your mother keeps saying. We've got to do salmon over here. Salmon. With the kids, with the grandkids. <laughs> they love salmon. I love salmon, too. <laughs> uh, get some rice and some vegetables. <laughs> there you go. Assortment of food. There you go. All right. Thank you guys so much for uh, tuning in to Da Huff Uncensored. Again, if you're a veteran and you are needing some help with PTSD, it's okay. There's plenty of people out there to help you. Uh, you can check out ptsd.va.gov for some help or just Google PTSD, and there's uh, plenty of options out there. And uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in to Da Huff Uncensored. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you're uh, listening to it. Make sure you share it. Make sure you give it a review if you're able. Thanks to Burns and McCoy. Check them out at burnsandmccoy.com. And thank you so much to Cinch. Don't forget to check out cinch.com, C-Y-N-C-H.com. Make sure you use that promo code mile high, again, all one word, to get that first tank exchange for only $10. It's the Huff Uncensored. I truly appreciate all of you. Make sure you, uh, uh, you know, be a good person today. And uh, make sure you tune in for the next episode. It's the Huff Uncensored. Let's keep moving forward. Talk to you next time.